Endless Hustle presented by the Movie Trivia Schmodown. The Movie Trivia Schmodown is the ultimate mental sport for the movie fanatic. Intense movie trivia with the flair of pro wrestling. Championship matches, competing factions, MTS has the best competitors in the world. This isn't your parents' game show. The end of the season finale is a Schmodown Spectacular 6. All of the championships on the line and all the greats play here. This isn't bar trivia, this is the Movie Trivia Schmodown. I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Hello, Endless Hustlers. Bro Bible's Endless Hustle is back for episode 113. We are 113 episodes in. It's incredible. What a number. I mean, hard to believe how many guests we've had. So cool. I am your host, Arthur Cade, and we have an incredible triple header ahead. First up, we have an actor who's been in my life and many other lives for many years, from hit franchises like Harold and Kumar to then designated Survivor, to even working with President Barack Obama, Cal Penn has had a very, very rich life. He has a brand new memoir out called You Can't Be Serious. We had an incredible chat with him. I think you guys are going to love it. Next up, we have Sung Kang, an actor that I absolutely love. Fast and Furious franchise, and of course, Power, one of my all-time favorite shows. He has a new movie out that he was heavily involved in making and producing, and it's really cool. It's called Snakehead. And then we're wrapping up with a, a short but fun interview with one of the greatest hip-hop stars of all time, Wu-Tang Forever, baby! We have Method Man on the show. So let's jump right into it. And before I let him go, Method Man, speaking of power, Power Book 2 Ghost is back for season two. So that's what we're talking all about. So let's kick it right off. Cal Penn, brand new book, You Can't Be Serious. Enjoy a fun conversation. All right, we got a great day on the Endless Hustle because Cal Penn, I don't know how else to introduce you except you're the talk of the town, man. Congratulations. Hey, if you're going to release a book, go big or go home, right? Thanks, man. I'm excited about this book. I, I spent like four, four and a half years writing it. I wanted to make it feel like you were having a beer with me, whether you listen to it or whether you actually read the hard copy. So I'm excited that there's so much love for it. I hope people enjoy it. All right. So where does the process begin for you to write a book? You know, you think of like memoirs and books. There's got to be like a point where you're like, ah, I got to share my life with everybody. What was that point for you? you know, the, the first time somebody told me about writing a book, it was the day that I left the White House. So I, I took this two year sabbatical from acting. I always knew I was going to come back to acting. The day that I left the White House, my manager called me, my acting manager, and I describe him as like, he is every character from the HBO show Entourage in one person. So he's a ridiculous human being with a heart of gold. He's a lion. He is, he's soft. He like, you know, it's all of that. And he called me and he's like, hey man, you should write a book. And I said, why? And he goes, because your, your story is so interesting. There's nobody's ever gone from working in film and TV to working in politics. And I said, the governor of California is literally Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, I feel like you're wrong. Uh, and I said, look, I got to be honest, that's not the reason that I went into public service. I genuinely wanted to serve our country. And I felt like it was the right thing to do for me at that time. So I don't think there's a there's a book there. There's no reason to write one. So then five years after that, I kind of thought, well, wait a second, maybe I do have a story to tell. And I wanted to write a book for the 20 year old version of me or the 25 year old version of me. So the guy who was the aspiring actor uh, wasn't really sure how to navigate the entertainment industry really wanted to like build a company and and build a business and and do my art do my craft and also had an interest in public service and i kind of thought like there were a lot of guys like this i knew in college and after right who don't just take this binary approach to life like you want to go out with your buddies and get shit faced and wake up early the next day and go to the gym and read that article in the economist that you thought was awesome and invest a little bit of money in like an nft or something like there you can do all of those things and we all do them in our real lives and we're but we're we're led to believe that you're only supposed to pick one thing or another and i thought that's who i want to write this book for because i've had the privilege of living all these lives and going on these crazy adventures i want to share that with people so that's what made me write the book 
obviously one of the big headlines is you talking about coming out and about your relationships. I don't want to rehash it. I know everybody's asking you the same question about that. So I won't be that person. But when you have to reveal these types of things about yourself, like I'm such a private person, I would be deathly afraid to even let people know what time I wake up. It wasn't weird, like putting all this shit out there and being like, oh, shit, people are going to really know about my life now. Well, I'm so excited to share it with people. You know, all, all the all the stories I'm excited to share with people. The, the, the way you're describing the way that you are is actually very similar to my fiance, Josh. So, look, I'm like like this. Like, I love to talk to anybody. And I like having conversations about things that I just don't know about. And I'm in the public eye as my job. But Josh, very much like my parents and very much like my brother, are uh, just not fans of the spotlight. So, um, you know, when we, they, when we've been together for 11 years, so when, uh, when he's come to premieres with me or he's met my work buddies or he's come out with, with friends, like, uh, especially premieres, actually a good example, because my, my parents and, and Josh and my brother uh, would come with me. We'd all go to like, like the Harold and Kumar premiere or something. And they would all get out of the car and go like through a side entrance, grab popcorn and sodas and like just wait in the seats. And they're like, go ahead. I know you got to do interviews. You have to go do red carpet stuff. I'm like, you guys don't want to come with me? Like, hell no, we don't want to come with you. I don't want to talk to somebody I don't know. I don't want somebody taking my picture. I want to enjoy the movie. We love you. We want to support you. But that's all you. And so when I was putting this book together, I wanted to make sure that, you know, okay, I might be excited to tell ridiculous stories about how Josh and I met over a love of NASCAR or how my parents, like there's a story in the book about how my dad literally grew up in a tenement in India that had no running water and no toilets. Like you had to walk to the end of the hallway in this tenement with a bucket of water when when you had to take a shit. Like it literally those, like I, I'm cool with telling those stories because I think they're really interesting and some of them are really funny and self-deprecating, but I needed to make sure that Josh and my parents and my brother were okay with sharing those stories because they're their stories too. And so part of putting the book together was making sure that, A, it's well-researched, that, you know, I talk about racism, I talk about things that, that, that go on in the entertainment industry and in politics, did a bunch of fact-checking for that, and then also obviously showed the chapters to Josh and my parents and my brother, I'm like, are you cool with this? And they're like, yeah, you're, you're telling those stories in a way that we would share them with friends anyway, so that, that sounds fun. So I'm excited about all that. I want to talk to you about your love of NASCAR. Where did it begin for you? I mean, the love of NASCAR was when Josh and I met. He, uh, it was like our second or third date, um, and this was when I was working at the White House. So your your only real day off is Sundays. Like it's pretty much a six day a week job, and then Sundays you're supposed to, you know, check your BlackBerry and kind of be be available. So I was like, come over Sunday afternoon. We'll watch TV or something, right? I'm like this is a perfectly innocuous second date. And this dude rolls up to my apartment with an 18 pack of Coors Light. And I had SpongeBob SquarePants on the TV and he turns it on to a NASCAR race. And I'm like thinking to myself, okay, so this guy's going to leave in 20 minutes with 16 beers because this is not how I'm spending my only day off. I don't know anything about NASCAR. Uh, and we start watching the race together. And one of the first things that happens is like, first of all, there's a massive fireball, like a car slams into the wall, spins out on some grass. I thought the guy was dead. Josh is like, oh, no, no, it's just a little all fire. I was like, what? I don't know what you're saying. I don't know the words coming out of your mouth. He's from rural Mississippi. Uh, I'm horrified that maybe this guy has a family. I'm like, I don't know what the deal is with him, but this is awful what happened to this driver. Next thing you know, the driver just like carries himself, pulls himself out of the car and walks off, dusts his shoulder off. The crowd goes wild. And Josh was like, see, I told you, it's just a wall fire. I'm like, what is the word that you're saying? He's like, oh, I'm sorry. It's just a little oil fire. And I'm like, that huge explosion was an oil fire that somebody could survive? And he's like, yeah, keep watching the race. So then I'm like hooked on what's going to happen next. And he's telling me about how there's so much physics and science that goes into like the temperature of the tires and uh, the velocity and speed at which people go around the track. And then we start talking about camping. And he's like, you know, when he was a kid growing up in rural Mississippi, he didn't have a lot of money. He and his family would take camping trips to NASCAR races. And in my case, my parents are immigrants. We didn't grow up with a lot of money. We grew up outside of New York City, but uh, we would take camping trips with other Brown families to like campgrounds in Pennsylvania and upstate New York, because that was the most effective, efficient way to spend time together. And so we, I, we found ourselves bonding off of this crazy camping experience and a love for the outdoors 
just by virtue of the fact that there was a NASCAR race on. So ever since then, I'm like, I got to know a bunch of the drivers. I root for a bunch of them. Uh, been to a bunch of races with buddies of ours, and it's always a good time. I don't know if you, have you ever been to a race? I have. I love NASCAR. I've had a ton of the drivers on Endless Hustle. So we've had Denny Hamlin. We've had Kurt and Kyle Busch. I love, and those guys are always a blast to chat with. And what I also love about them is they are building such incredible brands off of the racetrack as well. And they get it and they understand like the Bush brothers are just monsters. They have, one of them has a rowdy drink, which is popped off. It's incredible to see Denny is now a, a team owner. It's incredible to see what these guys have built for themselves. The, the branding and business that, that goes into that sport. I mean, and plus the, the brand loyalty of the fans of the drivers, like they'll literally, if, if, a, if a certain detergent is your driver's sponsor, people will only buy that detergent. It's a, it's like a sycophantic thing that, that is, that's how much they love their, their driver. It's a pretty interesting, interesting angle. I mean, anytime you have Michael Jordan come in and say, I'm a fan and I want to get involved as an owner, you know, it's something cool. Yeah, exactly. And, and Bubba's one of the drivers I follow, Ryan Blaney, Joey Logano. Uh, I met, uh, hung out with Carl Edwards a couple of times. He, he was on a, a Discovery Channel show that I hosted. Um, he's another like super brilliant guy. Um, he's a pilot. Yeah, I know he retired recently, but um, just it, the, the sport is full of really motivated, really interesting people. Have you done stuff with them or because of, if you haven't, because of you now exposing how NASCAR brought you and your fiance together, have they been reaching out and been like, Cal, get involved? They've reached out from the beginning. I mean, uh, they invited us to races eight, nine years ago, uh, 10 years ago, maybe gave us pit passes. Um, I presented at the NASCAR awards in Vegas once. This is by the way, a real thing for those of you who are not NASCAR fans, the NASCAR awards are a real thing in Vegas. And I, uh, I'm sitting in the audience. I was about to, I think I, I presented uh, an award to uh, Jeff Gordon um, that year. And I remember, you'll appreciate this joke. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's a real thing. It's not, just, it's not just a joke. But the word in, um, how censored are we, by the way? Play away. The word, the Hindi word for, for cock is Lund, L-U-N-D. And I'm at the NASCAR awards and they're doing a tribute to drivers from, I think the fifties and sixties or sixties and seventies. And there's a massive tribute that goes up to a driver named tiny Lund. And I lost my shit. Like I'm just sitting in the audience going, no way. Is this real? This guy's name is really tiny Lund. And Josh is sitting next to me. He's like, yeah, I, I, I totally forgot that he was a real driver. That's a real name. He's like, there's a camera on you in 10 seconds. You better pull yourself together because you can't be laughing at a deceased driver who everybody loves, but they're like little, just fun, you know, fun. They're a great organization. They've been really friendly to us. And, and uh, you know, it's been a while since I've hit up a race just because of travel and work schedules. But uh, if you're a fan, we should go, we should go to one. I'm in man. Let's talk about just your journey because you go from actor to Obama. Most people, when they have that type of career change, there's the fear, like, am I going to be able to return? Were you afraid that you wouldn't be able to come back? I think there's always, there's always a fear. And I, I write about this in the book a little bit where like when you, it's sort of like, it's similar to being an athlete in the sense that when you take a, a break or a sabbatical from a career that requires relevancy and requires you to keep up your craft, there's always going to be a gap. So I knew if I was taking a leave of absence for two years, I'm not going to come back at the same place that I left, right? I'm leaving at this high point in my career. I hope to build that back when I come back to my career, but I, I, I'm not under any illusions. I know that it's going to take a lot more work, but what am I trading for that? I'm getting a, a new experience. I'm serving my country. I'm, I'm working on things that I, I believe are important. They're important to me, my family, my friends, stuff like the economy or healthcare or, or, or civil rights issues. And you can't trade that for anything. So the skill set that I learned by working in those jobs was also something I never would have gotten if I had stayed in my, in my acting job. And my belief was I want to do both and it's not supposed to be easy and you have to make sacrifices along the way. So I feel really blessed that I had the chance to do that. The reason I say I feel really blessed is to be able to come back to acting. The first job I had back was on how I met your mother. Uh, the third Harold and Kumar came out shortly thereafter. Like the fact that our fans were willing to let us back on their screens was such a special thing um, for me. And I, I, I always feel indebted to them. I had Asif Manvi on the show not too long ago, and we were talking about how hard it was to break in in Hollywood, especially when you're brown 
And he was getting cast as taxi cab driver one, terrorist two, you know, the normal stereotype shit until he landed the Daily Show, which opened up opened up the, the, the Pandora's box for his career. You had success pretty early on. Obviously, Harold and Kumar becomes this incredible sensation. But did you have those types of moments where you're like, shit, am I just going to be cast as terrorist one for the rest of my life? Oh, tons, dude. There were I, uh, the, the first uh, third of the book, I actually outlined... Uh, I don't name names because I didn't want to give these people the satisfaction of me naming their names, but they know who they are. And obviously everybody has IMDb, so you could figure it out if you really wanted to. But I talk about uh, just these crazy audition experiences I had. Like I remember going out on, on early auditions and I would get told, hey, you speak really good English. Where are you from? I'm like, well, I'm from New Jersey. How come your English is so shitty? Where are you from? They're like, oh, I'm from, I'm from outside of LA. I'm like, oh, well, all right. Uh, or they would say things like, uh, where's your turban? I'm like, well, I'm not sick, so I don't wear a turban. And then they would go, well, can you go home and put a bed sheet on your head or something? Because, you know, we need the character to have a turban. And I was like, this all seems super sketchy. Obviously, it's it's horribly racist. But in addition to being horribly racist, it's super boring. Like, these are the people tasked with making people laugh. Like, you're, you get the job where you get to write a script. I'm like, why? You're boring as shit. So those were the two uh, the, the two things that I would always think was one, yeah, it's it's bullshit. Like there, there's a story I tell in the book. Um, do you remember the show Sabrina the Teenage Witch? Of course. So I was on an episode of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And I remember I, I went into the audition and the role was the part of a, of a college kid who was in Sabrina's study group. And I was super excited about this. I was like, all right, I'm going to create a whole backstory. The guy is going to be, uh, he, he's from the Pacific Northwest. He's into small batch organic coffee and micro brews. And, uh, and he, what was the, the, the fourth thing? Oh, and he wears flannels because he really likes Nirvana and Pearl Jam. So I go to the audition. I, I crushed the first round. And the casting director comes running out to my, to my car. And he's like, hey, hey, come back in. The producers want you to do it again, this time with an accent. And I was like, oh, I hate when this shit happens. It would happen all the time. And I walked in and the producers are very smug, very white, very like, very boring, frankly, uh, not because they're white, but because they're boring. And, and they go, yeah, we'd love you to do it again. And this time with an accent. And I said, what kind of accent would you like? I can do Irish, British, Jamaican, Italian. And they were not happy with this. And they just go, why don't we just stick to Indian? And so then I just thought like, all right. I mean, I have a choice. I could either do this for them or I could leave. My rent was five fifty a month and this job paid $700. Uh, so what do I want to do here? And as I write in the book, I said, I decided I was going to do it. Uh, so I did the accent and I left and my agent called and said, hey, you booked that job on Spring of the Teenage Witch. And what I hated about getting that phone call was it wasn't a happy phone call. I'm like, I have been working for years to be an actor. I'm finally getting a job on a show and I'm not happy about it because I have to, I have to worry about whether it's a stereotype or I have to worry about something racist. Like that sucks. All my buddies who are booking stuff get to be happy when they book something. They go out for drinks. They're like, yo, I just booked this job on ER. Let's go get a beer. And I don't want to have people over for beers because this might be like the most racist shit I've ever done. So, uh, so my agent at the time said, you should actually talk to the director, see if he'll, see if he'll let you do it without an accent. So go in early that day. So the day of the shoot, I go in early. Uh, I detail this in far more detail in, in that chapter, but I go in and I, I pull him aside and I said, hey man, I would love to, to do this, this part without an accent. And he said, no, the accent's funny, you're gonna do it. And I just thought, well, they say that racism comes from ignorance. So maybe he's just ignorant. So I'll explain to him. I was like, you know what, man? I never got to see people who looked like me on screen when I was a kid. They were all either cartoon characters or they had stereotypical accents. I just thought it'd be so nice if I didn't have to have one. Plus, I have little cousins. They're like nine years old, 11 years old. They love your show. It's so funny. Um, wouldn't it be cool if like they didn't have to see a stereotype? I'd love to do it just with the way I normally speak. And he goes, well, I'll tell you something. Your little cousins should feel lucky that you get to be on TV to begin with. And so should you. And he walks off and I'm like, oh, oh, so this isn't a question of somebody being ignorant. This is a question of somebody being fully actively racist. Uh, and again, the choice was mine, right? Like I could have I could have left. I could have made another choice. I did choose to do that part because I wanted to credit on my resume. That was my hustle. I needed that money to pay my rent. And the hope was I could build up enough of a resume to one day be able to do roles like Harold and Kamar, which I was so glad I had the chance to do.
So when Kumar obviously blows up and you're having this success, you're probably on one hand thinking, this is fucking awesome. Like, finally, it's happening for me. But then after that wave wears off, do people just see you as Kumar? Is it difficult to be like, hey, I can be, you know, the secretary of state and designated survivor or something like how was there difficulty getting away from people seeing you as this one character? In my case, not really. What what was cool about it was the the smarter producers and and writers uh, were the ones who who gravitated towards that movie and said, "I think he can branch out beyond that." So first of all, like I could make, I'd be happy if I was making Harold and Kumar sixty nine when I'm a hundred years old. And yes, that's a sixty nine joke. Uh, but I, I would also like the uh, David Shore who created House. I mean, I think that he liked that I played this this totally outgoing stoner in Harold and Kumar and thought, let's audition him to see if he can do something else. And I could, and I was really thankful for that. Mira Nair, who, who directed this movie, The Namesake, that was based on a Pulitzer winning uh, author's novel. Uh, John Cho introduced me to that author. And I got that audition for that movie because of Harold and Kumar. So if it weren't for Harold and Kumar, I wouldn't have had the chance to do The Namesake, which is a, a gritty independent drama. One of my favorite things I've had the chance to work on. So my experience was actually that the lame uh, casting directors and producers, the ones like the Sabrina Teenage Witch people, they had no interest in hiring me anyway. The smarter, more creative people who I wanted to work with anyway, they saw stuff like Harold and Kumar and they're like, oh shit, that was a funny movie. Let's see if he can do something else. And I'm very thankful for that. John Cho, do you end up because of the experience of Harold and Kumar building almost like a brotherly bond over through that? Like, is it something like you guys like you know, merge for the rest of your life because of that type of tandem in a, in a franchise? For sure. One of, one of the first things, I mean, but look, we both were also really well aware of the fact that as two Asian American men, nobody had really done a movie where the, the two leads happen to be yellow and brown in a movie that was just about hamburgers and weed and friendship. So we bonded off of, of that, the fact that we both knew this was a huge opportunity for us. But when I say that, that Cho was like a brother to me, I can't remember what chapter this is in. It's in it's in one of the Harold and Kumar chapters, but I, I do tell this story and I'm happy to tell it to you because it's true. John Cho, you know, that first movie was predominantly shot inside a, a car and most of those car scenes were on a soundstage. So we weren't physically on a street and it was stuffy and the windows were rolled up and every so often he would step out to stretch his legs and get some fresh air. And one day, probably like week two, we had bonded somewhat, but he, you know, Harold drives the car and, and, uh, Kumar's on the passenger seat, I think, or maybe it was the other way around. But, uh, but he um, he takes he he goes, uh, hey man, I, I'm going to stretch my legs. And I was like, okay. He takes the keys out of the ignition after he rolls up the windows. He opens the door. He takes one foot out, and then he farts like the longest, loudest fart anybody has ever heard in their lives. Shuts the doors and hits the door lock, and I'm trapped inside his fart machine. And I'm like, first of all, fuck. And then second of all, this is how you know that somebody's like your brother. So when I say that John Cho's like a brother to me, it's because of stories like that too. Before I let you go, I saw that the Obamas congratulated you for the book. And obviously you now have a relationship. Do you ever kind of just sit back and think, holy fuck, Barack and Michelle Obama are my friends? <laughs> uh, I, I am very thankful for their friendship. The, the, the real holy shit moment for me about things like that and, and I, I know this is going to sound hokey, but I really mean it is, you know, I, I, uh, I started working for them uh, way before their campaign had really exploded to, to being viable. And it was a really small knit group of people who were working in Iowa before the Iowa caucuses. So before the first series of states vote, and you really get to know the candidate, you get to know the senior advisors, you get to know a lot of, a lot of people in an environment like that. What a country where when people make their voices heard, when they show up to vote, and, and to be fair, like, I don't know who's watching this, Obama might not be your candidate. You, you might love Trump. You might love somebody else. The thing that I want you to take away from that is, like, people win when, when other people show up, right? So the idea that now you can look back on somebody like Obama and say, well, that was a two-term president. Uh, that's crazy that you you know that person. Sure, that's true. But what's really more incredible to me is that somebody who at the time was a, an outsider to his own party, who was down 30 points in the polls leading up to 
that first Iowa caucus um, could build so much support because people went out there and voted and wanted to, to build a campaign that was a little bit different than what they were used to before. And that can happen in community centers. It can happen on the local level, state level. Obviously, it happened with both Obama and Trump were outsiders to their own parties um, and totally remade how those parties operate. That's an incredible thing that only happens in a democracy. So to me, that was the like, obviously, yes, I'm very thankful for their friendship. But I'm also just floored by uh, what's possible when people actually show up. I loved when you were describing actually working for them earlier. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know what, if I was even like a stone's throw from the presidency, the questions I would be asking would be, are there UFOs? Where's the red button that you get the press if all shit goes to hell? Yeah. Meanwhile, you're like, I'm just serving my country and giving this noble answer. This is why I did not go into politics. Obviously, I want to know the answer to the UFO question. I just didn't want to ask it at work because I felt like I'd get escorted out of the building or something like, but of course I want to know that all my tattoos are astronomy related. Of course I want to know the UFO question. You've got to pull him aside and be like, listen, like he's on his deathbed. Obviously I'm hoping Barack lives forever, but he's on his deathbed. He's going to be like, I have one question for you, president Obama. Were there UFOs? And that's it. Like, and you get, he whispers in your ear and you're like, okay, I'm good. Right. Exactly. Cal, this has been a pleasure. Congratulations. The new book is called You Can't Be Serious. Fantastic, fantastic press all around it. You're always a pleasure to chat with. Thanks so much, man. Brother, nice to talk to you. Thanks for having See me. You. See you, brother. Take care. All right, folks. That was, of course, Cal Penn. Love that dude. I've chatted with him many times over the years. Always just a great, great conversation. Next up, everyone knows Sung Kang from the Fast and the Furious franchise and Power, which is like Stars' biggest show ever. He's got a brand new movie out. It's awesome. It's called Snakehead. Everybody go support it. I think you guys are going to love this chat because here's a guy who's had incredible success in Hollywood, but it's not what drives him. And I think this chat actually went way differently than I expected to. And I have such respect for Sung Kang after talking to him because he's kind of the anti-Hollywood guy who's achieved tremendous Hollywood success. I think you guys are going to love it. So here he is, Sung Kang. All right, we got a great day on The Endless Hustle, although the man has better hair than I do. So strike one against you, Sung Kang. But <laughs> love you on Fast and the Furious. Obviously, Power was one of my favorite shows. And you got a brand new movie out called Snakehead. Congratulations. You're awesome, man. You're awesome in anything you do. I got to tell you that. Oh, thank you, Arthur. Thank you so much. Let's start with this new movie. What's everybody getting? Tell me all about it. Well, this is a this is a, a project that is the true definition of a passion project. Evan and I, we, I mean, we've known each other for over, like, I think it's close to 20 years now, you know, and little brother, basically. And, um, you know, he's had this dream of being a filmmaker. And, I've been able to live with him and live on this journey. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the true definition of, you know, the indie spirit, Arthur, you know? So I think people are going to get, first of all, there's so much sincerity and heart to this, you know, without that, that is our only currency really, you know, in movies like this without the passion, you know, um, we have no shot. So um, I'm excited for people to see this because, you know, every moment of it is sincere to the filmmaker um, and everything shouldn't have happened, Arthur, you know, but somehow we're here. Like it took four years to make this movie happen, right? Like, come on, this is crazy. The fact that you even want to talk about it, we keep pinching ourselves. It's like, we thought this movie was done. Like nobody cared. It's such a long journey, right? So it's a complete, to me, this is like, this is like the Hollywood dream come true, Arthur. The fact that I'm talking to somebody that actually cares, you know? So Isn't awesome. it amazing? People have no idea how hard it is to get anything made in this business. It's like, it doesn't, unless you're The Rock or like Vin Diesel or someone, it's like getting a small project off the ground is just near to impossible. Sure is, sure is, yeah. So obviously filming something like this, a smaller indie versus what you're used to with the gajillion dollar budgets of the Fast and the Furious, and obviously Power had a monster budget. How different is it doing a smaller project versus a bigger project? The process is exactly the same. You know, I mean, the films are made in, you know, films are made in three parts, the writing, 
you know, and then the, the production of it and then in editing. So actually like pragmatics of, you know, the process is actually the same. The only difference is like you said, it's a jillion dollars compared to no money, right? And, um, but sometimes that's even better because, you know, less is more, you know, when you have, and, and, and those type of obstacles, when you have less, it forces, you know, the director and, the, and all the creatives to, you know, come up with better, you know, to, to come up with ideas to figure it out, right? So I think it forces one to be more creative, forces one to be more fluid, right? Um, and forces one to find ways to convey the story without spending money. So the only difference, Arthur, is that money affords time. You know, and it doesn't hurt that you have hot coffee opposed to like you know, two day old coffee, but movies are short, you know, there's like three months of your time and who cares when I hear an actor complain about something I totally don't understand it like somebody's even though the food's a little stale someone's actually bringing it to you, you don't have to cook it and have to buy it come on man it's free food and it's only for a few months right and then they were, we get to play pretend, you know, someone's feeding us right, so it all works out is the only difference to me Arthur is that money and budget affords time right and you, instead of two takes per scene you know you can do five and you can really kind of you know uh, you have the opportunity to work out you know the scene right so that's it so i want to talk to you about korean cinema and television because i am such a fan right now when i became aware of how great the art is coming out of that country was parasite and then the Squid Game obviously took over the planet. Did you please tell me you've gotten to watch Squid Game? By the way, of course, I binged it as soon as I heard about it. I binged it. Yeah. Why is why is the stuff coming out of Korea so fucking good right now? Well, that's a great question. I I mean, my theory is that a lot of these filmmakers now, you know, and a lot of them have trained, you know, in America. They went to NYU, AFI, UCLA. You know, so the sensibility is very, you know, like the storytelling aspect of it is very, you know, it's very familiar, it's similar to, you know, the Hollywood styles, the three act structures, you know, they worry about, you know, performance first and story, right? Story and then, you know, and, 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 and performance. And also, you know, me being Korean, I can speak on it is that, you know, we're highly emotional people, you know, we're, we're war torn country, you know, we've been We've been occupied, you know, our, our culture, you know, our country's been, you know, other countries try to annihilate us, you know, they basically, and so there is this thing called Han in our culture, and that's the death. It's hard to actually translate what Han means in, in, in another language, but it basically means like there's an internal sadness. Even when things are going right, you have to worry that, hey, you know, th you know something's coming because they're going to take all this away. So don't celebrate so much. And vice versa, when, when it's rock bottom, Hey man, don't worry. If it's this bad, it's only gonna get better, right? So there's always like this kind of internal, like emotional turmoil going on. And we and, and Koreans call each other hot pots, right? Like like pressure cookers because we get excited and we and everything's like kimchi, like a kimchi stew, and it's sizzling and all these spices and we're going. And then as soon as you turn it off, everything just gets cold, you know. So like we're super passionate people and I think it, it, it's slowly translating over you know within cinema and and then with you know the streaming it becomes a global audience and the stories are all relatable it doesn't matter what language you speak or where you're from you know you can see yourself in a squid game and what I love about a movie like squid game and parasite at the end of it it forces you if you're paying attention to question yourself and for me squid game has propelled me to be a better person and have a different perspective, right? And things that I can relate with. And I think that's why a part of it is like, it's become so accessible and digestible to everybody, you know? So, yeah. If we threw, if we threw the Fast and the Furious characters into Squid, Squid Game, who do you think survives, if any? Let's see, that's a good question. That's a great question. Let's see. Han. <laughs> yeah. Han. I think Han would survive. <laughs> it's like, I'm not dying. <laughs> yeah. Not dying. Yeah. And then I'm going to go back for more. 
just like the main character. Right? Well, that was, I mean, I was so blown away by this series. I absolutely loved it. Obviously, with Fast and the Furious, man, you're talking about arguably the biggest franchise on the planet. How does that change your career? You, you come on into the series. You've been in pretty much every single movie. I checked IMDb. It looks like you're in the new one again. How does how does this like change everything for you because of the the reach of that of that franchise? I mean, it doesn't change anything. I don't know what it's changed. I mean, in terms of opportunity, I don't know. You know, that's that's why I moved into directing because I don't think I'm gonna have. You know, I I I look at the people like Clint Eastwood. Like, I would love to have a career like his, right, and play roles like his as he, you know, as I age. But who's writing it? Who's directing it? Who's creating it? I, I sometimes I worry. Is this like a trend? You know, um, and so how has it changed? You know, I think people want to hear the narrative like, oh, Fast and Furious. All of a sudden, they you know you're propelled into like this, you know, dream world. It doesn't work like that. It's still, I have to be a journeyman. You know, like I'm always worried about the next job. Um, and then I realized like, oh, I can't do this. Like I can't be dependent on other people. And because of things like Squid Game and Parasite and Snakehead and learning from Evan and seeing the trials and tribulations he went through and just being, you know, res you know resilient. I realized that if I don't start you know, creating my own material and I'm not in control of it, I'm going to be that jaded actor that you're going to meet one day who doesn't want to answer your question that has no light behind his eyes. So, you know, I wish I could give everybody there like this Hollywood ending, but we're just beginning, Arthur. You know, we just, we, I feel like we're finally at the table. You know what I mean? But I don't know if I'm going to get a full meal or I'm just going to get a side dish. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What, so, a, what an <laughs> honest and authentic answer, man, because... That's a type of question where you're right. Like the, the, the answer could be, oh, more scripts have come my way or there's recognizability. But at the end of the day, it really is. You don't know what your next job is. And that's what this industry is. You could also win an Oscar and not know where your job is, the, the next job is. It's such a fickle industry. And that was so authentic, man. It was awesome. Thank you. But at the same time, you know, I can tell you how fast has changed my life, Arthur. And, and not in terms of career or financial or anything like that but it's giving me hope especially today in times of today with all of this divisiveness and all this you know negativity we see on online and you know all these like different groups going after each other and especially with all this asian hate stuff you know i can i'm in austin texas right now and you know it's like the other night you know, my friend was asking me, he's like, does it get annoying when these kids come up to you and like yelling Han and they're grabbing you and they want pictures and they're just going crazy, you know? And I said, you know, when I was younger, I didn't know what I could do with that. It was just really like, it was like an ego thing. It was like vanity. But after like the fifth picture, it's like, what am I doing this for? Then you become that jaded actor. That's like, nah, I don't do that little kid. And I, and I realized I go, so what is this? What is this celebrity thing, right? The beauty of Fast and Furious is that it is global and it, the money of it is just the byproduct of people being able to identify with it. And what's amazing, Arthur, is that I told my friend, hey, look, there was a white kid, there's a black kid, a Hispanic kid, Asian kid, there's a woman. That guy's probably gay or that guy's like trans or whatever, but they feel like they grew up with me. And then I'm able to have a human connection with them and break this notion that Hollywood actors are not approachable. And because of what's going on, I feel extra responsible. My activism is one-on-one. -on -one. Me posting about stuff is like, who gives a fuck what, I'm sorry about my language, but who gives a, who gives what, who gives a crap about what actors posting in its you know, Hollywood mansion, right? So to me, it's like, how do I actually make an impact? And how do I touch people? I don't need to touch a million people, just one. And the fact that I get to interact with a white kid from Texas and he treats me, he feels like I'm his brother, right? Like he feels like we're family. And I get to also be sincere and ask him, where, where are you from? What car do you drive? We get to, I get to be a little Han. You know, everybody, as kids, we needed Santa Claus because it gave us hope for Christmas, right? It gave hope, be a good person. And then Han kind of represents that and how blessed am I to be able to play a role that is beloved. I mean, the only reason I'm back from Fast Night is because the, the audience, the fans wanted that character back, you know? Um, so that's how it's changed my life. It's humbled me. 
it's made me aware that every person that knows the franchise or knows me from the movie, I have a responsibility, you know, not just for other actors, because this notion of celebrity is so negative today. Because I think a lot of people use the celebrity for the wrong reasons. And it's taking me a while to understand like, hey, with all the hokiness of fast and all that, it's like, you know, but like, it's actually super positive because it's so global, you know? And I feel blessed that I got, I get to live in these shoes, you know, so. Dude, I fucking love that answer. I'm not excusing myself for cursing. That was fucking great, dude. I just love your perspective. You you still have the the true artist perspective, which I totally dig. And and you're right, fame is a fucked up thing, man. I I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over the years. I've been doing this for a decade. And you can just see the change from day one when they were kind of nobodies to then they become somebodies and you just see the change. The glamour team comes in, then the publicists and the managers, and you just, you see it, it's tangible. Fame's hard, man. Fame is very hard. And you get to work with some of the biggest stars on the planet. And, you know, someone like The Rock, for instance, who's handled it about as well as you can ever handled it. Anyone could ever handle it. But What's fascinating with The Rock is he worked his ass off to get where to where he is. And I think that's the, pe the people who go through that journey. I mean, you nailed it. Right now, there's a thing called instant fame. You have TikTok, you have Instagram, you're famous overnight half the time. But people like The Rock who really had to build a brand, build themselves, they retain that humility. It's incredible. That's right. And I mean, you know, to echo, you know, what you were talking about um, with Dwayne, you know, I, there was a time when I was kind of trying to understand this idea of fame and how do you handle that thing when people, you know, bum rush you to asking you for all these pictures or they're invading your private space. And, you know, and I told them, I said, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Like, I don't, I think I want, I, I, I don't want to be approachable like that because I don't, I, I feel like it's insincere. Like, I feel like, you know, I'm Mickey Mouse at Disneyland. They, it's, it's not even a hello it's a give me picture right and I was like I don't know how to deal with this man and he said it in a perfect way this is the best advice and I always share this with other actors that it was you know think about it we are the few people in the world that have been gifted by whatever entity with the opportunity to go outside and make someone happy just by taking a picture and asking what their name is and so it takes the same amount of time to say no and run away and break the little kid's dream or break that fan's dream of their hero. And it was, it's a, our responsibility. And without the fans, we're not here. So it's your responsibility to make sure you engage with them, to make sure that you almost perpetuate their idea of who you are, because it's a positive thing. And you get the ability to make someone's day their week or maybe their whole year or it was like a, their life dream to meet the Dwayne, you know the rock right so you could totally contribute and make the world a better place and, and put fertilizer and grow the flower or you could just stop it right and and from when it comes from someone like Dwayne, you know that it took a long time to, for him to like form that perspective because he he's way more famous than me he was he He's been famous for a long time, right? And now he's like one of the biggest movie stars in the world. And to have that perspective, and you understand these are the things that lead you to become number one in the world. And there's a reason why he's there, right? And the reason why he's so beloved. When you talk to anybody that mentions Dwayne, it's always out of, it comes from respect. And just like you, it comes from hard work. It's just old fashioned cowboy stuff, right? And, um, and when it's hard and you have to earn it, it's precious to you. And then you become empathetic to other people going, hey man, I was there. So that shift in perspective is why I'm able to talk to you because you're only as good as the people around you and you have to have mentors. And I've been lucky that I've had teachers like you know Dwayne around me to be able to watch and learn from people like him. You, know? so. you reminded me of a moment, I don't know if you're an NFL football fan, but there was a moment yesterday with Tom Brady where there was a kid in the stands that held up a sign that said, um, I beat brain cancer because of Tom Brady. And Brady walked over to him, gave him his hat and shook his hand. And the kid just started bawling and it went viral. And, you know, Brady, listen, Brady's not doing that to get press. He did it, you know, purely to be sincere. And you just forget, again, the responsibility of how something like that, here's this kid who 
who knows how much longer he may live or he may cure this, but he'll always have this memory. And you're just like, holy shit, this one guy and what he's done in his life transforms so many other lives. It's amazing. Yes, yes, absolutely. I want to talk to you about power for a second. So I would interview the cast every season. I became, I've had Omari on the show, Layla, everybody, 50. Talk to them every single season. Never talk to you though. But Mm -hmm. I knew that show was going to be big. I remember when I interviewed everybody at the Junket season one, I'm like, this show is going to fucking take over. And it became a monster. But what's crazy to me is you're nothing like John Mock. It's incredible to see the transformation. Like he was such an asshole and you're such a like deep thinking Mm -hmm. Is a sweet guy, but how much fun is it to play a character like that who's just a total a-hole? Awesome. Awesome. You know, the only the only bad part of it is, you know, when I go to the airport, you know, there's the ladies that check me in and, you know, prior to power, they, you know, they're like, I love you, huh? I love you, right? It's like, it's good to give me hugs. And then when, when they saw me empowered, I remember the same lady looked up at me and she's like, you need, uh, you, uh, what's his, what's the main character? What's Omari's character's name? Uh, Ghost. Uh, yeah, Ghost. She goes, you, you got to leave Ghost alone. And I was like, what? And she wouldn't talk to me. She's like, I don't like you no more. <laughs> she goes, you need to grow your hair. Like, I don't like that. Like, you need to leave my baby alone, right? And I was like, I never got that much hate. But then my wife was with me and I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Like, this is, I've never been lambasted like this before. So like, either I stay like, they hate me. I go, you know, and she goes, you know, it's acting. And if they have that reaction, obviously you're doing your job. So look at it that way. And I was like, true. Right. But yeah, really fun, Arthur. Like, you play a great, you play a great dick, man. I mean, you do a great <laughs> job with it. It's awesome. Like, cause you keep like such a serious face and you've got that dry delivery. And I'm like, this dude is such an a-hole. It's awesome. <laughs> well, Courtney makes it easy. The Courtney cam you know the showrunner and creator um and the writing staff they make it easy you know so um they really respect you know what uh the script means right um in the process so it's actually one of the first directors i've i mean uh, showrunners or production teams i've met that forces and demands everybody to be at table reads right um i've never experienced that and i love that you know it's like i love it because we're all we know the map all together so people aren't all over the place so it's 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 just a great like you know exercise and i think it, you know, most production could benefit from applying that so by the way she just signed like a gajillion dollar deal with i forget if it's netflix or abc she went somewhere and just signed one of those mega mega yeah. overall deals so anytime either one of us needs a loan we got to hit up courtney <laughs> Dude, congratulations. Congrats on the new movie. I know how hard it is having been in this business a long time and how hard it is to get anything off the ground. So congrats. And obviously all the other stuff you've done. Really great answers, dude. Super deep shit. Cool stuff, man. Thanks, Arthur. I appreciate your questions and you being able to have this conversation. So it goes both ways, man. So I appreciate Yeah, I love it when it's just not the regular sound bites. That's kind of my interview style. I love when it can be conversational. This is a great man. Yeah, that's why I get so nervous when I get on these things. Like, I don't know where it's going to go because I don't know any other way, you know? So I appreciate it, man. So thank nah, you. Great stuff. Thanks, thanks for coming on. Thanks for getting up to the room too and making it happen, okay. brother. Sorry about that. I'm sorry about the nah, All good, man. Thanks for making it happen. Have a good rest of the day. Okay, bye. Take care, brother. All right, folks, that was Sung Kang. Make sure to check out his brand new movie. It's called Snakehead. Awesome, awesome chat. You're welcome back anytime, Sung. Finally, one of my all-time favorites. Man, I wish I could have had an hour with this guy. It was a junket interview, so didn't get that much time. Get like five minutes with him, but still, anytime you get to Zoom with Method Man, you're going to have a great time. Power Book 2, Ghosts is back for Season 2. Awesome having Method Man, even for five minutes on the show. Here he is, the one, the only, Wu-Tang Forever, Method Man. Arthur Cade, Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. Oh my God, that sounds like a villain name. I love, there's no better way to start this than with Method Man getting makeup and powder on as we're starting, bro. That's the only way I want to start this interview. Congrats, man. Power, one of my all-time favorite shows. I'm loving all the spinoffs. How cool has it been joining this universe and seeing the success of this show? Very cool. Um, I had no idea 
the family element that was on this show already. You know, a lot of the crew came from the original series. They all knew each other. And that helps a production run pretty smooth, if you ask me. I love this transition, both with you and the RZA, to see you guys move into acting from arguably the most iconic hip hop group of all time. When did that shift happen for you? When were you like, ah, I want to give acting a try and actually find out you're good at it? Well, you know what? Um, I had done work for prior to that, but I was never really as dedicated to it. Um, I would say around the time I did a movie called The Cobbler and uh, Tom McCarthy kind of opened my eyes to a different way of thinking about acting. And it was like, wow, I never thought of it that way. And since then, it's been like I've been very greedy, like feed me more. Give me more, give me more, give me more. And I finally got a role that I think I, I uh, satiates that hunger, so, so, so to speak. You know, um, this power book too, is, it's a handful. You guys were my favorite hip hop group growing up. And there had to be a moment for you when you knew you had made it. What was the moment that you knew that you had achieved cultural icon status? Oh, wow. Uh, I used to go to high school with a lot of kids that love rock and roll and it didn't matter if uh, if it was wintertime, they always had these denim vests, a sleeveless vest that they would wear over the leather jackets. And you would see Metallica and uh, Slayer, Judas Priest stickers, even Rolling Stones sometimes, go figure, right? Now those same kids, they still have those patches on their jackets, but Wu-Tang is on there also. That's what I knew. You guys brought in so many incredible trends, so many that as a kid I copied. But my favorite one of all time was the hockey jerseys. How did the whole hockey jersey thing begin? I don't know whose idea that was, but it was brilliant, man. We had a bunch of different, just colorful, different hockey jerseys. You know, um, you know, New York pride is, is, you know, we love our sports teams and no one's bigger I mean, the Islanders are great, and I'm a Long Island kid, but nobody's bigger than the Rangers as far as hockey goes and uh, New York sports. And um, I guess Wu-Tang was just paying homage, and it turned into a thing. When it was happening, what was the response from the hockey community? Because to see that type of crossover into an audience that may have not been hockey fans at the time, how cool was that? And were people just reaching out like crazy? I don't think they cared, honestly. I, I think uh, I didn't get invited to any hockey games. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, but I think the hip hop community on a whole, you know, they love fashion. They love edge. And um, it kind of spoke to their fashion sense. So it worked. What was your favorite one? Because I've seen the Rangers one. I've seen the Pens one. What was uh, the favorite jersey? Islanders. The Islanders. Because, you know, Staten Island, Long Island. I'm an Islander. So many great albums over the years, so many great songs. Mm. And I know they're like children to you guys. But if you were to pick one that is at the top of the Method Man mountain for you, what is the th song that means more than any of the others? Um, they say this is a big bridge down. <laughs> I just come from the poorest part. I'm going to go with that one. That's what Man, we way, to, way to work in a plug for the show. I love it. <laughs> My final question is, how, what can people expect? Obviously, just with the show upcoming, what are people getting? Um, they're going to get a faster pace, and um, things are going to be coming at you every second. So it's going to be hard to keep your breath. Yeah, so try and keep up. Awesome, man. You're one of my all-time favorites, Method Man. Thanks for a fun chat, brother. I appreciate you. Thank you, brother. Mr. Wu-Tang Wu forever. All right, folks, that was, of course, Method Man. Make sure to check out the brand new season of Power Book 2 Ghost on Stars. That's it for another great episode. Make sure to follow us on social media. Endless Hustle is on Twitter at Endless Double underscore Hustle. On Instagram at Endless Hustle Pod. Me personally, I'm at Arthur Cade on Twitter at It's Me Arthur Cade on Instagram. We're back with a brand new Thanksgiving episode on Thursday. We've got the legend Stevie Van Zant. He's got a brand new book out. And of course, we're talking Sopranos, E Street Band, Springsteen, the whole deal. And then we also have legendary hip hop star, Too Short, one of the greatest on the show. So we'll see you on Thursday, Endless Hustlers. Keep, keep hustling. <laughs>